0: Well, last week we started talking about this
1: text in Hebrews, where the theme is a theme of suffering,
0: or anticipated suffering. In fact, that's really the context in which the whole book of Hebrews is written, because the church that Hebrews is written to, was anticipating
1: some persecution. The church today uh, experiences persecution, though
0: perhaps, maybe in our setting, it's not so immediate or
1: severe many places it is. I think
0: uh, as the church, though, we probably should at least anticipate the possibility that as faithful followers of the Lord Jesus, we might experience a similar reaction to the one he experienced. certainly would see that among the Apostles and
1: Jesus said that. The scripture we read this morning from first Peter says that. Don't act as though it's some kind of surprise he says. Well so, last time we talked about this. Have you
0: encountered persecution in following Christ? Have uh, perhaps you have? Some of us have. Maybe many of us have. At least on some
1: level of ridicule or disdain or insult,
0: the world does regard the Christian faith as foolish. And that means that some people, if they hear you're a Christian, and especially if they hear that you're, you mean it when you say you're a Christian, and that you really do believe that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God who gave his life a sacrifice for sin and rose from the dead, and you really mean that,
1: They will regard you as stupid. As trusting yourself to some ancient,
0: ridiculous set of beliefs that the rest of us are now smart enough to realize is not the case. But you're
1: stuck in the dumb old way. Well, when we are regarded with this contempt? Are we tempted to buy the new, more advanced thinking? When young people go to the university
0: and all these really smart people are telling them how foolish it is to trust in
1: Christ, is that a temptation to disregard Christ, to let
0: go? And the writer of the book of Hebrews <coughs> is anticipating, well, people have sort of been talking about it, and he can't believe it because if you know Christ, Christ is not
1: leavable. Christ is it. And so from the beginning
0: to the end of the book of Hebrews, he's talking about Christ is the Lord Jesus is all we have. He is the God
1: Almighty made flesh. He is. God with us and
0: to know him to have the privilege of association with the Lord Jesus Christ is to have it all. And since he's talking to Hebrews, he talks about how all of the story of the Hebrew nation was aimed at Christ. And so to have Christ and then think about going
1: backwards is just supremely foolish. But if our immediate situation makes Christ painful, we might be tempted to let go.
0: But the constant admonition of the book of Hebrews is the Lord Jesus Christ has actually opened a way for you to have immediate, constant access to God Almighty, the Holy Righteous One. You can stand in His presence and pour your heart out and receive help and be his child and be provided for by him, and so draw near, hold on tight, know his love, and then exhibit his love in relation to others. And in the midst of this consideration of persecution, he We come to this text. He says, remember the old days, you Hebrews, this church? You remember when after you came to Christ, you endured a great conflict of sufferings? He's reminding them, you've already gone through the thing you are now anticipating, experiencing again that might make the temptation a little stronger because they know now. But he says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. You could translate that insults and pressure campaigns. and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So some of you really experienced it, and some of you partnered with those people and supported them in their suffering, and in that very way shared their suffering. You took some of their suffering upon yourself, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted the seizure of your property. That's not what it says. It doesn't say you accepted the seizure of your property. It says you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Well, when I read that, I'm reminded of Peter and James and John coming out from the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer. They'd been beaten, for the name of Jesus. It was like oh yes. We are the real thing. And they rejoiced. That they had the same sort of experience that Jesus had. When they publicly associated with Jesus. And proclaimed the good news that is in Jesus. Jesus. And someone came along and said, stop it or we'll kill you. And that's what they said at first. They later changed their mind and said, okay, we're only going to beat you badly. And they rejoiced in that and preached harder afterwards. You almost feel a little bit sorry for the Sanhedrin because they, they tried to put this down and they made it worse. You showed, the writer says to the Hebrews, you showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. How did they do that? Knowing. It was knowing something that enabled them to joyfully accept this persecution. What did they know? That you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one you can take my property, I've got more. And the more that I have, you can't take. Therefore, he says, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those
1: who shrink back to destruction. But those who have faith to the preserving
0: of the soul. So he's encouraging them to say, look, all this talk about you know letting go of Christ, that's just foolishness. Don't throw away your confidence. Hold fast the confession of your hope, which has a great reward. This hope will not be disappointed. And so he's looking at a group of people, and he can't tell
1: which one's might not really be getting it. So he says, keep drawing near for help in time of need. You have
0: need of endurance so that you may receive the promise. And then he has this interesting expression, when you have done the will of God. Now some of us are going to go into that pit of despair that is Oh, have I done the will of God sufficiently that I might
1: receive the reward? Oh, no. Well, here's the answer to that question. No, you have not. If you think
0: that doing the will of god is something like obeying the law of god the answer is no you have not
1: and you will not and cannot if that's what he means we're all doomed well <clears throat> i
0: just wanted to remind everyone what Is at the heart of doing the will of God. We can find it in the book of John, chapter 6, one of many places. We can find it. The scripture says, For by grace you've been saved, and that not of yourselves, or by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of your doing. And in the next verse, he says, for we are the doing of God, the workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Well, Jesus said, John chapter 6, I'm going to read verse 28 and 29. So they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? that's a direct question. What do we need to do? Now they're responding to something Jesus said where he said, Don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal so they said well what shall we do that we may work the works of god he said this is the work of god you ready he's going to say it in half a sentence this is the work of god
1: that you believe in him whom god has sent jesus Now, it's an interesting sentence because they said, what's the work
0: we should do? And what he tells them is the work that God does that they do. (laughs) In other words, the work
1: doing the will of God begins with God, not you.
0: If you try to do the will of God, you're going to be banging your head against yourself
1: and you aren't going to make it happen. Just try. Let's just try one commandment. Let's say from now on, at all times,
0: you will be truthful.
1: Starting now. Some of you have already failed. In fact, if you said, Yeah, starting now, I will be truthful, you've lied to yourself. The work of God
0: is the work that God works in you so that you do this work believe in Him who God sent,
1: trust in Christ. If you go on in the book of John, say, to chapter 14, Jesus says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If anyone loves me, he will keep
0: my word. You see, the work of God is that God so
1: loved the world, you, that God so loved you that he gave his son so that you would have everlasting life. And
0: all you do is live the everlasting life he's already given you.
1: You trust it. You believe. You trust him You know his
0: love because he gave his life a sacrifice for sin, yours. And he has exchanged your sin for his righteousness. And so the Lord looks on you in him. And so the Lord looks
1: on you as his beloved child. And so God Almighty
0: has accepted you utterly and forever and for good and for once and for all, and there's no revoking that
1: acceptance. And so how do you feel about him? You love him. If you see
0: these things, you can't do otherwise. If you know his love, you reflect his love, and not only to him. And so if anyone loves the Lord Jesus, he says, he will keep my word. Well, if you love the Lord Jesus, you wouldn't do anything else. If you're doing something else, it's because you're at least for the time being setting aside your love for him. And he says, the father responds to this. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He said that a little bit earlier in chapter, in verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. And so as I reflect the love of God, I come to know Christ even more. I call this the upward spiral. I know him, so I love him. So he shows himself to me, so I love him. So he shows himself to me, so I love him. And the spin off of this is I obey him because to do otherwise would be just kind of foolish sort of
1: dumb like and a and a discounting of all these amazing gifts when you've done the will of god that will take some endurance primarily the endurance of faith
0: You could read about this in James chapter 1 as well. Consider it all joy when you come under various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance of what? Faith. You see, the Lord in in this test grows our faith. He's not looking to, to get rid of it. He's looking to improve it. And so, when I find myself in times of trouble, I trust him harder. I look to him quicker. So he says, don't throw away your confidence,
1: lean on it. And when you've done the will of God, there's a reward. You've exhibited his
0: glory in suffering for the sake of love.
1: And from the resource of love. A love that you don't generate. A love that you simply reflect. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance so that when
0: you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. When you've trusted in Christ, you receive the promise of Christ. And then he says this, For yet in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. For he is coming soon. That our this troublesome time in which we live is not the end of the story. And he is coming. And he quotes this text. He says, for yet in a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He's tell, reminding us of the story of Habakkuk which we read from last Sunday, which is an odd thing to be reminded about because who knows anything about Habakkuk? Well, I guess maybe if you were a first century Hebrew Christian, you might have known something about Habakkuk. Maybe. Many of us Christians never read this book of Habakkuk, And it's only three little chapters, so you could read it and go, I wonder what that's about, and move on. You might not know, you might not be able to tell. Habakkuk was written in the time of Jeremiah. It's the time of God's announcement of his judgment on the nation of Judah, and his announcement of the coming Babylonian captivity, the exile, because the nation of Israel, now only two tribes, Judah. Now the nation has really sort of forgotten about God. They're not faithful in the covenant. And God said, oh, you can read about this in the book of Deuteronomy at the very beginning. When you, this happens, this will happen. And so Habakkuk is a prophet, you know, a godly man. So he prays to God, and he says, how long are you going to put up with your people like
1: this? And God answers, and he says, well, not much longer. You see, I've got the Chaldeans over here. You know those Chaldeans, those wild and vicious people? I'm sending them to deal with this. The Lord is coming. And Habakkuk says, oh, wait a second now. (laughs) Uh, How can you use the Chaldeans who
0: you know we're we're not obeying you, okay, right? But
1: they're godless, evil nation. They're worse than us. So there's these two or three rounds of the conversation between
0: Habakkuk and God, and Habakkuk says, "What do you? How can you put up with this?" And God says, well, "I'm not putting up with it. I'm bringing the evil nation to judge the." my nation and habakkuk says well how can you that how can you advance an evil people over your people and god says oh i've got that in hand also i'm coming so in the book of habakkuk the the end proposal is the great day of the lord in
1: which the nations are judged and god's people are saved that great day of the Lord began in Bethlehem when the Lord Jesus was born. And so the Lord is coming to do two things. One, he's employing evil
0: Gentile oppressors to judge Israel. And we might consider what we mean by judge in this instant. It means to sort and cleanse Israel, his own people and to deliver the righteous. The Lord is coming to deliver the righteous, and that's the context in which he says, my righteous one shall live by faith. And the book of Habakkuk divides the people into these two categories, my righteous one that lives by faith and the one who shrinks back in whom my soul has no pleasure. Apparently in the nation of
1: Israel, there are real believers and not. And so this is kind of a good analogy for the church that the
0: writer of Hebrews is addressing. And he poses to the church, he says, there's a choice There are those who trust God and live by faith, and there are those who shrink back, in whom God takes no pleasure. And then you have this great sentence at the end of this chapter, we are not the shrink backers.
1: We are not the shrink backers. Those who shrink back to destruction.
0: But those who have faith to the preservation of the soul. And so you have this choice, trust God or shrink back. This is the same choice faced By Israel, when they came up to the door of the promised land, what did they do? They did not trust God. They shrank back. So they wandered in the wilderness. He's already made that case here in the book of Hebrews. Don't be them. And here he says, we are not
1: them. Just like he said in chapter 6, I have confidence that this isn't you. So we are those who
0: trust God to the preserving of the soul. And that simply means if my soul is going to be preserved, it's because he's going to preserve
1: it, not me. My life is in his hand.
0: And like Peter, if you ask me, can I leave Christ? I say, And go where? I have no other place. Just like he said earlier in this chapter, if you turn away from Christ, there's no other sacrifice
1: for sin. We are not those who shrink back. And Habakkuk
0: becomes this person at the end of the story in chapter three, where you have this great hymn when he says, you know, if nothing good happens, if the crops start growing, and he's, he sings this song that's like, a, like singing the cursing part of Deuteronomy, where, you know, if you're, if you're not faithful, if you're not trusting in God, then things aren't going to go well for you, Israel, in the land. And he's saying, you know, if everything goes off the rails, if crops don't grow, if we're starving, no matter
1: what, I will trust in him. To me, it's a great joy that the very next expression in the book of Hebrews, the first verse of chapter 11, says, now faith, now faith. We're not those who shrink back. We're those who trust in Christ. And he says,
0: faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. And what he's about to do in chapter 11 is go through the litany of the men of old. Some of them were women, by the way. The men and women of old who Gained approval by faith, and this is kind of the point for us. God's approval is gained by faith, which means not by you, but by him, by him,
1: by what he has done, that you simply receive, that you simply trust And he says this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, I want to point
0: out to you that this is not a definition of faith. It's a
1: description. Now, why would that matter? What he's saying is faith has
0: these characteristics. Faith does these things. Faith acts and thinks this way. The assurance of things hoped for. This word assurance means like the substance of the thing hoped for.
1: Faith is the presence of the future. Faith is receiving now the thing promised later. And
0: this is going to be the point in all of chapter 11. Where he says, all of these men, all of these great people died without receiving the promise. We've
1: received the promise. And we have the promise yet to be received.
0: And so he's saying, this is, faith is the thing that brings
1: hope into the world now. The substance, the confidence, it's actually
0: the word hypostasis. It means the being of something, the reality of something. The reality of the thing yet to be realized now is in faith. He calls it the conviction of things unseen. You could, I think the King James Bible translates this as the evidence. Faith
1: is the evidence. Of the unseen thing. The promise of the Lord Jesus. Is shown in the world. By your faith. The evidence of things
0: unseen. Faith exhibits. The reality of the coming kingdom. Of the triune God. I'm going to say that again. Because that's a. Big sentence. Faith exhibits the reality of the coming kingdom of the triune God. It bears witness. Bears witness. It's a
1: martyr. It's a martyr. It bears witness. And
0: there's no more powerful bearing of this witness than. The endurance of suffering for the name. And so the apostles rejoiced. Because when the Sanhedrin says to Peter, shut up or you die, he says, I would rather
1: die than shut up. I can't stop talking about the The greatness
0: of the Lord Jesus Christ and the great goodness of God that is poured out through him.
1: I can't shut up about that. And also, if you kill me, I won't die. And so, what this does is it amplifies the goodness of God's grace. It amplifies it. It does the opposite of suppression. And so when we endure
0: suffering by trusting in the Lord Jesus, this glorifies the truth of the Lord Jesus. This amplifies your faith. And so your faith becomes the evidence of things unseen.
1: The assurance of things hoped for. Because you will endure anything
0: for that hope. And so at the beginning of chapter
1: 12, we read, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And so for the joy set before us, we endure whatever we're called
0: to endure. And in doing so, we do so joyfully.
1: That doesn't mean it's not really going to hurt. But we do so joyfully. And our joy in the face of suffering is one of the best apologetics for the truth of the gospel that there is. The very first person who followed Jesus was Peter's
0: little brother, Andrew. How would you like
1: to be the one who introduced Peter to Jesus? That's Andrew. Andrew says to Peter, hey, you got to meet this guy. And Andrew was a true apostle. He preached the gospel. Uh, He came to the city of Patras in Greece. And he brought many people to faith. Well, the governor... Heard about Andrew,
0: heard about Andrew's effectiveness in the ministry of the gospel. So he came to Patras because he had a mandate to put down this Christian thing that was in the Roman mentality atheistic
1: because it was against the gods of Rome. So he enforced a legal requirement that everyone worship the Roman gods and make
0: sacrifices to the Roman gods. And Andrew heard about this. He said, Ah, no, no, no,
1: no. So Andrew went to see him. He didn't come after Andrew, Andrew went to see him.
0: And Andrew made his proposal. Went something like this. It would be wise for someone who judges men to know the one who is his judge, the one who lives in heaven. And once you've known him, you will worship him, since he is the one true God. In doing so, this judge of men will turn his mind away from false gods and blind idols.
1: This uh, made Aegeus mad, not happy. Though
0: what Andrew was telling him was the best of all the best news. He said, are you the same Andrew that overthrew the temple of the gods? Are you the same Andrew that goes around persuading men to believe in superstitions which
1: Rome has abolished? I've been commanded to put an end to such teaching. Andrew replied by saying that it was indeed a
0: fact that the Roman authorities did not understand the truth. The Son of God came from heaven into the world for man's sake, he said. He taught us that these idols you honor as gods are not only not gods, but are actually cruel demons They are enemies to mankind and they teach people nothing except things which offend God. As a result, these people fall into all kinds of wickedness and when they do, they have nothing to offer to God but evil deeds. As you might imagine, the governor was not appeased by what Andrew had to say. Instead, he commanded Andrew to quit teaching and preaching these things immediately, and if he refused, he would be fastened to the
1: cross at once. Andrew did refuse, and replied to the threat of
0: crucifixion by saying, I would not preach the honor and glory of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. So the sentence of death was pronounced. Andrew was taken away to be crucified for denying the religion of the Roman gods. Because crucifixion was an especially cruel and painful death, men who faced it often lost their minds from fear. They would faint when they saw the cross. Andrew, however, didn't even pale. Instead, out of his deep love for Christ, he spoke these words, O cross, he declared, O cross, most welcome and long anticipated, I come to you with a willing mind, with joy and desire, since I am a follower and a student of the one who died on you. I have always loved you and sought to embrace you. So Andrew gave his life for the love of Christ. Now, that story, I'm quoting that like I know what Andrew said. And that story is a part of tradition. But the apostles did, in fact, willingly, even joyfully, give their lives for the gospel. Nowadays, Most of us are not called upon to do anything close to that. Some are, but most of us are not. But to whatever extent we might suffer for the name of God, for the name of Jesus, it has an amplifying effect on the testimony of the truth of the gospel. It declares that this life is not the end of life. And it declares that our hope in Christ is real. And so glorifies the Lord. It says, I would rather have the Lord than my life. It is a supreme statement of the precious nature of knowing Christ. Like Paul described in Philippians chapter 3. I give anything for the sake of knowing him, for the surpassing value of knowing him. It truly is of surpassing value. So we are called like the Hebrews, if we anticipate some trouble, to endure in trusting ourselves to him for he who promised is faithful. Father, we give you thanks For your wise goodness, Lord, we know that whatever path you might lead us through in this life, it is a path to great glory in the life to come. Lord, we anticipate the coming of our Savior with great joy, even knowing that it's a time of great judgment.
1: It is also a time of great salvation, of resurrection to new life. Father, we are humbled by these things. We look to you, we trust in you, we
0: pray that you would direct us, help us, strengthen us, encourage us to so embrace the love of Christ,
1: to be so loving in him, to bear the witness of his goodness. We thank you for that opportunity and privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.